Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, there is a new Elixir programming book bundle hosted by the Humble Bundle. Humble Bundle usually is games, but they also do from time to time have book bundles. And this one is a Pragmatic Programmer Elixir programming book bundle, which is really kind of impressive. Like it, it wouldn't seem to me that there would be enough broad spectrum interest to do this, but they did. So for $18 US dollars, you can buy the full 19 books. And some of the titles include Testing Elixir, Programming Elixir 1.6, Property-Based Testing with Proper, Erlang, and Elixir, Concurrent Data Processing in Elixir, Programming Phoenix 1.4, Adopting Elixir, Metaprogramming Elixir, Genetic Algorithms, and then two NERVS books, a GraphQL one, Real-Time Phoenix, Programming Ecto, and that's not even all of them. I have gotten book bundles in the past. I got a DevOps book bundle, and that's really where I really started digging into doing DevOps and setting up Kubernetes and everything. And it was super helpful for that. But these are all great titles, all from Pragmatic Programmer. That is a super deal in terms of money. One of those books at $18 is a good deal. Good deal on like knowledge. Yeah, when I saw how many books there were, I was like, I've bought at least a few of these for $18 or more. Like, I should have just held off a little longer. Super good deal. Okay, next up. We wanted to talk about an upcoming Elixir feature that sounds awesome. What You Hide recently tweeted saying that uh, mix format dash dash check formatted will show you the diff. This is kind of cool because I know um, once you put it into CI every once in a while, someone's like, ah, oh, it's failing. Why can I not see what changed? And and it's true. It's kind of annoying. If like for every once in a while you get yourself in a situation, I don't know if you guys have ever seen this where like, CI formats that's slightly different than locally. And it's like, you're on a different Elixir version. It's someone coming in outside of the project to contribute. It's not fully set up. I don't know. So this should help out. And he also talked about syntax highlighting in the new DBG feature that came out in the recent Elixir release. Yeah, the syntax highlighting in DBG, that's, that's nifty. Also up, uh, Scenic 0.11 was released. So Dot 11 is a major overhaul that's quoting them from the top to the bottom. For, for the first time, Scenic feels like something approaching a 1.0 design. <laughs> cool. So it's like it's a major update. Uh, if you've used the previous versions, you should definitely go read the update guide in the docs. And they have a uh, yeah upgrading to dot 11 guide in there. In case you don't remember what Scenic is, Scenic UI is the OpenGL bindings for drawing interfaces on devices. So the theory is uh, you compile it on your machine, it might be Mac, and that should just travel over pretty well to a Raspberry Pi, for example, and you can draw up on the seven inch you know, displays that they got there. It's all OpenGL drawn, so it's nice and performant. But if I remember right, also, it's not the kind of system that you want to do like video games with necessarily right but they have like inputs they draw their own inputs but it's all so it's all really consistent so if you haven't heard of it go check it out and now's a good time to get in there because sounds like they're approaching a 1.0 in design next up following up from the conference dockyard had a keynote where they talked about four major r&d projects so not everyone could attend the conference, obviously. And if you want to get more information about what they covered, they created four different blog posts talking about each of these initiatives. In particular, I just wanted to highlight one because they'd mentioned 
in their keynote Beacon CMS, but they didn't really talk about it at all. And so there is a a blog post about it, but just a a little snippet says, Beacon is a content management system built with Phoenix LiveView. It's a new addition to the Elixir toolkit designed to give development teams the opportunity to stay in the Elixir ecosystem when choosing a CMS. It's one of those things where in Elixir, we, as a community, we don't have a CMS that's available just like, oh, here is the CMS to reach for. And they saw that gap and they said, you know, we would like to provide an option. So I haven't played with it yet, but I did want to put that on the radar so people can be aware that they are talking about it and there is forward motion happening with the project. Yeah, that's exciting. And we've talked about this before. And I and I said last time how I love CMS systems. I don't know why, but I, I played with it a long time ago and it's brand new and it was very new. So I'm excited to see what comes of that. We saw another example recently of a mobile app written in Elixir. We'll drop a link to the tweet in the show notes, but it looks like it uses Elixir desktop project, which we talked about with Dominic Letts back in episode 113. He created an Android application that shows his geothermal ground heat pump status at a single glance. It's open source and it's on GitLab, so you can check that out if you're interested. It's exciting to see projects like this coming out, and it kind of reminds me of the LiveView native project that we've talked about. So exciting to see what's going to come in this area. Yeah, I love the idea of having the Swift UI Live View native with the Elixir desktop, you know, running on the device. Like that's like the ultimate thing. It's like all of it, a complete mobile app in Elixir. And next up, Surface 0.8.0 was released during the conference. It has a number of new features. One of the big ones is scoped CSS styles. To describe that, it says, when dealing with a component or live view, you can now declare its CSS styles directly in the template using the style tag or in a co-located CSS file. The Surface compiler will treat those styles as scoped styles, so any CSS declaration will apply only to the related component. That is something I saw a lot in React, where you had scoped styles for React components. I think it's a great alternative if you're not using Tailwind CSS or you're just like, I'm not, I, I hate Tailwind CSS. I don't want to use that. Because if you are using Tailwind, it's automatically scoped just by the way the classes work. But there's a number of other improvements and features that came out in this version of Surface. So if that's a library you're using, you certainly want to check that out. The Elixir track on Exorcism.io is now running Elixir 1.14. So that's pretty cool. Screenshot shows off the use of the kernel.dbg you know, function. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a, in a minute, but yeah, the DBG function is pretty cool. So I was really happy to see that in a uh, setting like Exorcism because that could, well, really help you debug <laughs> to see what's going on in your workflow. That's like a perfect use case for it. Anyway, that's pretty cool. Next up, a live book feature that Jose Valim showed off in his keynote at ElixirConf is shown in a tweet. There's a little GIF or a few seconds of a video showing the ability to use the dbg function in live book so he pipes a couple of things into live book and not only does it break it out and show the functions but it also makes every step in the pipeline a draggable html element so this is kind of crazy you can drag and reorder the functions and then there's even a toggle on each pipeline function where you can enable or disable that function in the pipeline it's like we're programming in the GUI here. It's actually kind of crazy. It's a really neat example of building something unique and powerful in Livebook Elixir cell output that displays based on runtime feedback. So like the debug function is returning some structure that Livebook is able to interpret and say, hey, we can do extra stuff with that. I want to see it in IEX. (laughs) (laughs) The terminal I want to drag. Just kidding. 
Yeah, I, I, I got to know how that works. I get the protocol. It, you know, if you implement like a protocol for Livebook or a smart cell, right? For it t- tells you how, how you can interact with it and all that. But I have no idea how it works with with DBG because <laughs> that's supposed to be like transparent, you know, like to, to how your code works. It's supposed to pass on the thing, you know, the, the value right through it. Uh, so I, I'm going to have to go dive into some source code on this and see how that works. That's pretty cool. As you drag it around and reorganize your pipeline, it's real time updating to show you the different output that you get as you change the order of things. And so he's showing it off with a, a series of string functions where you might be uppercasing or replacing or doing things like that where order matters. Then there's a new little feature that says copy new pipeline. You click that and it copies the way you've reorganized it into the clipboard so you can just paste it in and replace the code that you've been playing with with the new version of the pipeline. It really does make me wonder what else is possible, like what kinds of special coding features could be done. Like you're talking about this this uh, support of protocols to enable some of these things. Like what else can this do? Oh my goodness. I think he's trying to make Livebook into an IDE. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it for the news. Fly.io supports this podcast by providing editing services. Beyond being great for supporting us, they are a great place to host your next Elixir app. Check them out at fly.io. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Carter Bryden. Carter, welcome to the show. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me. So, Carter, we invited you on because recently in episode 110, we were talking about the end of localhost development and what that meant to us. You reached out to us and you're like, wait, hold on. You missed some of the big points here. And we recognize and acknowledge that, you know, we're not actively developing this way. And you're saying, wait, this is really cool. And here's why. And so we wanted to give you a chance to come on and give that other perspective. And so uh, about how this actually is beneficial for as an individual or a team and how this works for Elixir. And so I'm glad to have you come on and and help us get a, a fuller picture and appreciation for this. But before we jump into that, I'd love to hear more about you. Like, where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? I'm a Canadian. I'm originally up from uh, the middle of Canada in the prairies and uh, moved out to Vancouver in the last six or seven years. I've been an Elixir developer for the last five or six years. I've done a lot of different work in software. Some of the things that I've done are uh, uh, freelancing and contract work for a lot of my career. And then more recently, I've been working on a solo project of my own called Approximated.app that's built in Elixir and sort of like an API for infrastructure as a service. And I can talk a little bit more about that later, maybe. But I also work for Quantified Citizen. And uh, what we do there is we are working on making studies scale, mainly health studies. So we have an entire ecosystem of tools and, and software that creates studies, uh, manages them, runs them through mobile apps and things like that. And we mainly focus on on uh, health research and similar avenues. Yeah, there's there's quite a bit of uh, Elixir work going on on both sides of that. For you, dear listener, if you missed our previous discussion where we were talking about the end of local host development, feel free to check out episode 110. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. But to kind of sum up some of the points that we were making there, I objected to thinking of a new layer of abstraction, meaning like the remote dev environment, as a solution to what the actual problem might be is that maybe our software projects are overly complex and too hard to manage. 
So that that might be why we're turning to that and why that's being talked about in the community and like the tech sphere as here's the solution. It's like, well, is that really the solution to the problem we want to fix? So then also we were talking about how Elixir can do much more than other languages. And that might mean we can scale much larger using Elixir while keeping the overall system complexity much lower. So maybe we don't need some of these solutions. And honestly, like we just didn't like the idea of not being able to develop locally. But that's what we're most familiar with and comfortable with. So on Twitter, you basically said, hold on, you're missing the point. So I'm, I'm happy you could come join us and help us get a better perspective on the other side of that. Introduce us to what this is. Like, you don't call it the end of local host development. You're calling it remote development, I think. Or kind of describe what it is you're talking about. Yeah, so I think that it's a bit of a misnomer to say the end of local host development. I call it remote dev environments because the idea behind this is to make your dev environment extremely encapsulated, reproducible, portable, easy to use, easy to understand. There's a whole bunch of different parts of this, but the idea is not to eliminate your ability to develop locally. In fact, I think if you do this right, it should be easier to develop locally than ever. And it's about removing the kind of unknowns and complexity that you would find through, let's say you have a team of people, everybody has their own local dev environment. And naturally over time, because of the way that that persists and changes and everybody has their own customizations and all these things, you can get these unexpected effects. It can make it really hard to onboard people. It can make it really hard to reproduce certain things. There's, there's a lot of benefits that you can get from, from doing dev environments this way. I like to say that it's basically doing for dev environments what we did for production a long time ago, which is we containerized it, we made it reproducible. You know, we boiled it down to a version controlled set of instructions and dependencies and things like that so that it's not a, a complicated thing to set up. So let me let me give a, an example of how how locally developing an app can get out of hand. Like because uh, I, I I think a lot of developers, especially if they've developed for five to ten years, because that is the kind of time frame you need for some of these libraries and dependencies to evolve past the age of your app. Uh, for example, let's just use OpenSSL. I've installed Elixir and Erlang, and it worked with a certain version of OpenSSL, and then my machine is done, right? I, let's, let's just make it that simple. My, my machine's done. Five years later, and, and we don't upgrade anything at that point, right? <laughs> now, five years later, we've hired a new developer to come maintain this old app. They've got a fresh, brand new, shining, sparkling machine, Let's just say it's M2 as well. <laughs> Let's just say it's a Mac M2. The first developer was on an Ubuntu one because he's a nerd. The second, the, the second one is just a you know a, just a, a a regular developer machine. You know that that's right, folks. You heard it from me. M2s and Apple machines. That's that's the that's the common developer's machine. There's nothing cool about them anymore. They're old. They're, they're <laughs> old news. All right, but that M2 machine now has that newer version of OpenSSL. So they they literally can't spin up the app anymore without doing a bunch of upgrades to this. Some people would call this like dependency hell, but that's just, that's not a very deep tree of dependencies. <laughs> so that's just, that's just one basic requirement of OpenSSL. I think I'm understanding you correctly, Carter, that just the solution of containerizing your app, you are stating explicitly, you know, that this, this app is running in this environment let's just call it Ubuntu that we're, we're pulling from Ubuntu 22 or whatever version 
and that is pinned to a certain version of OpenSSL. We've got our specific version of Elixir in there, right? And it's completely consistent. And to boot, you can almost ship that container <laughs> to production. All right, so that's one example. So, so what else does this setup look like? I think it makes sense what you guys are saying. Like we we onboarded a dev this week, and during the onboarding process, we realized over time, like you're saying, there were a few things that we just kind of like put in without documenting or without really thinking through like, what's the, what's a good way to put this in? It's like, all right, start your app. Oh, it's not working. Oh yeah, you need to run this command. All right, start your app. Oh, it's not working. Oh yeah, there's this other file you need to put in this weird location. We should fix that. All right, start your app. Ah, oh, one more thing. Okay, this is the last thing. Put this thing there. <laughs> and it was, I mean, it wasn't terribly complicated, but it was still like not just get your depths and build and you're done. It wasn't super easy. The biggest win out of all of this, sorry, Carter, <laughs> that I thought uh, out of containerization is infrastructure as code. You've got some more examples on this, I think. What, is, what does this look like for you, Carter? There's a lot of ways that you can do this. And the most basic way is just setting up some servers somewhere, hopefully near your developers. And you set up your own dev environment to use something, some kind of file mounting system, and you connect them into like a, a running Docker container in there or something. I wouldn't really recommend that, but for maybe for larger companies, that's something that, you know, you really want all of the control. You want to be able to tweak and customize everything. For most people, most companies, I'm, I think that it makes a lot of sense to go with one of the, one of the providers out there. And there's not that many right now. And frankly, I, I've been doing this for, I've been doing remote dev environments for about five years now, maybe even longer, actually. It's been a really small market of providers. And so the options are just starting to open up. I can see, you know, like GitHub and, and therefore Microsoft have really started embracing like code spaces. You're seeing Amazon actually bought one that I used to use called Cloud9. So if you're using any kind of remote dev environment there, that's what they want you to use. I think they intended it for lambda function editing and things like that and there's there's a few others but the one that i kind of consider the gold standard right now and that i use my team uses at work is uh, gitpod.io i don't have anything to do with them they don't pay me or anything but i'm a, I'm a huge fan of the way that they've done it they've kind of changed the way that i think about doing this which is i used to think of it as okay my my dev environment should be something that is this persistent long-running very stateful thing. You know, it's got all of my tweaks. When I leave it, I come back. It's exactly how it was. Their philosophy is that your dev environment should always be ephemeral. So your workspace should only exist for the generally for the duration of whatever you're doing. So if you're working on a PR, if you're creating a new feature, if whatever you're doing, maybe even just for that day or for that hour. And then when you're done with that, it should wipe it away. The next time you open it, it should be something clean. But but why 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 should it be ephemeral? Is, that's that sounds like that's solving an issue that I don't care about, which is billing. <laughs> I thought the exact same thing. I thought, can you just can you just give me like basically SSH access to something? And but the benefits that you get from this is that for one, it really enforces having this like clean, reproducible workspace, so that nobody has this long running workspace where. It's like, well, it works on mine and I've got these things set up and I've installed this and I've tweaked the settings in this way and my dot files are over here. And it's not to say that you can't have your own dot files, you can't have your own editor, you can't have your own settings for your terminal, whatever you want. 
but but some of these are saying that. I mean, code spaces, right? Like Cloud Nine, that's that's your editor. They want to envelop your your entire develop your editing experience too. And so that's why I generally wouldn't go with one of those. Is they're they're not as full featured as I would like yet. Every once in a while, I go back and I take a look at them, and they're just not quite what I would need. So the thing with Gitpod is that they're basically just doing all of the hard work of running the infrastructure of all of this, which is essentially orchestrating and managing containers for you. The reason that you want them to be ephemeral is, so let me give you an example. If I wanted to create a new feature for an app, I'm working as part of a team, you know, let's say I'm, I'm doing a feature branch. I mean, I don't know, depends on what people are doing, if you're doing trunk-based or GitFlow or whatever. But let's say we're doing some GitFlow and I'm doing a feature branch. I create this branch. If I'm using Gitpod, I can create a workspace just for that branch. It sets everything up for me. It takes a couple of seconds and I'm ready to go. I can do my work in there, everything I need to commit that. I can push up a PR and then people can actually open up that exact. I can either create a snapshot for people to open up or they can just open up like a fresh workspace from that branch where the code is in that point. If there's something that I need specifically, like I don't know, some database state or something more, you know, more stateful than the, the version controlled code, then I can create a snapshot. I can link it. They can open it up, get exactly what they're looking for. They see what I saw. It is the exact same thing. That's one way to use this as part of a team. That's really nice. Can you describe a little more like when you say you just grab my branch and you're set up in a few seconds, what does it, what does it look like? Is it like syncing to your computer or is it it's not a web IDE, is it? Or is it? I don't know. What does it look like? Most of these will give you some level of connecting locally, so you can use whatever editor locally that you'd like. A lot of these these days are, are based around VS Code just because of its popularity and the fact that it has really good like remote connection support. Like just, they just do a lot of nice stuff with SSH connections and port management and auto discovery and that kind of thing. But if you're, you know, if you're using a Vim editor and you want to connect in, there's there's no reason why you can't connect in over either a port or SSH connection or whatever you'd like. And I mean, because of the way things run these days, it's going to automatically detect where you are and have your workspace close to you. So like latency is a non-issue. The power of these workspaces is, I mean, most of the services you can scale them up and down, but like, you know, we're talking like eight cores, 16 gigs of RAM, like whatever you need. So I guess that's one of the benefits right there is if I'm only using this for a small period of time, I can go with a more beefy machine that has a lot of capability because I'm turning it off and I'm not paying for it when it's turned off, as opposed to spending a lot of money on a laptop or a computer, and it still costs me that same amount of money if it's sitting there on my couch when I'm not using it, right? I mean, it depends on the service. They have different business models. I know Gitpods is like you pay a flat rate per month and they just don't worry about the time. So they'll spin it down for you if you're not using it after an hour or whatever, or you can set it to extend that for, you know, a few hours if you want that kind of thing. But yeah, it's, it's hugely beneficial when you, I mean, I think just like environmentally or, or energy usage, if you spread that out over a lot of developers, that's quite a bit of time saved that way. I mean, one of the things is not everybody's going to have this like super powered laptop or, or desktop to use at home. Like some people are working on Chromebooks. This, I mean, you could do this on a tablet if you wanted. And yeah, it costs a little bit of money a month, but it would take you years and years to get back to the cost of like a, a MacBook Pro or something like that. So I guess the killer would be like using a MacBook Pro to do this 
remotely, right? Like, <laughs> Which lots of people do. Destroying all the financial benefits, yeah. <laughs> I wonder how common that is. I mean, I don't hear of, at least in the U.S., I, I highly doubt that developers are supplied with a Chromebook or some Raspberry Pi, right? Some underpowered machine. N- no, I'm I'm fairly certain they're getting like a fifteen to two thousand dollar machine each, you know. And and then on top of that, and this is true because I personally experienced this. Like, I have an expensive machine, and then they tell you not to develop on it. <laughs> I tell you, they they rent machines from other places, and then they tell you to do your development over there. And my machine is a glorified Chromebook at this point, right? <laughs> it's just such a waste of money. What that tells me, though, <laughs> is that they're not doing it for the financial reason. There is another reason that they see to say this is worth it. Yeah. So I think the financial aspect is interesting, but maybe that's probably not the killer feature, right? So I think I do want to come back to what Cade was asking. Like, what does this actually look like? Because I just, I've never seen Gitpod before. And just looking at it, I see, you know, like there's desktop versus browser kind of a view. So it sounds like I can have VS Code installed locally on my machine. And so I'm I'm typing locally, I guess. But I, I don't know if I'm able to check out like which extensions are activated as part of this project and all of that. Maybe that's part of a workspace or something. I'm not sure. Like, what does that look like? Because I can totally see your point. Like, if I pull up a Ruby app and I want a bunch of extensions that enable the Ruby support that I want in my editor. And if I switch over to a Go app, I'm going to want a different set of extensions. So what is that story like? When I started using these kind of things, this was actually the exact use case I had. I was a freelancer and I needed to switch between about 30 different projects in a year, potentially, depending on what I was doing, all with different stacks, different dependencies. And it got to the point where local host, like, you know, my computer was a mess after a while. And this was this was sort of it at the beginning of containerization in general. And so I was hesitant. I mean, actually, at the time, I couldn't even run Docker on my computer because I was running on a Windows computer and it just didn't run on there. So with this, you basically need two things in general. Most of these most of these uh, providers would have something similar to this. So you'll have something that describes your container. Most of the time, it's going to be like a Docker image, sort of uh, like a Docker file, basically, just because that's so universal and so many people know it. Underneath, they might be running it on Firecracker. They might be running Nix. I don't know, something that converts it to that. You never know. But that's what that looks like. So you need one of those files. And then generally, you're going to have something that's going to run some kind of scripts or just organize things for you. So in Gitpod, that's like a Gitpod YAML file. And so in that, you've got three different sections of commands you can run things in. So you've got something that will run in pre-builds, which is a whole thing that I should talk about after. You've got something that runs on startup, and then you've got something that runs after you've connected. So it's like, you know, you've connected in and you want to export your dot files uh, to your terminal, that kind of thing. When you're running like that, that means that you've got everything described. You can version control that. And it, it's easy to understand, easy to edit. Like these files are not huge files. They're generally, I don't know, 20, 20 to 40 lines at most, depending on what you have. And a lot of that is like the Docker file, you know, it's grabbing whatever random dependencies I want, you know, maybe some kind of open SSL stuff or, or whichever. And then the scripts, a lot of the time, the scripts are just conveniences. Like it, it's just, okay, I, you know, I want to be in this folder when I get there. I want this stuff open. I want to, well, one of the things that we do actually on my team is we run Docker in these workspaces. So we have a whole Docker ecosystem of five or six apps now um, running different stacks. And we can actually just have it run Docker Compose, spin all of those up. Those each get a different port assigned automatically. 
And then by the time the workspace opens after, you know, 10 seconds or 30 seconds, whatever it is, all of that's running. Everything's been pre-built and pre-compiled by servers every time I commit. And it's just ready to go. Like it's, it's sitting there ready in exactly the state I need it to be to start working, which is really fantastic for, again, if I have to do a PR review and somebody's pushed up, pushed up a new branch, I'm reviewing it. I don't have to like, okay, you know, like here's their instructions I got to go through. I got to migrate this stuff. I've got to change these things or, or whichever. It's just like, here it is. It's ready to go. This is exactly as I left it. And that has really cut down on review time, made things a lot easier. Is that about like seeding, like getting the data there to illustrate the problem and the fix? Yeah, that often can be. That's one of the things that we'll, we'll do is because you can set up environment variables and have them change per branch and things like that. Sometimes what we'll do is we'll set up like an SQL seed or, or something to get things into a state so that it's exactly where it is. If we wanted something really specific and we want it to be as easy as possible with this, usually what we do is we would also include a snapshot. So most of these services will include something where you can snapshot your workspace. And it's it's just like if you were in a Docker container and you created an image of that Docker state, that container state in that moment in time, it's going to be exactly like that. So I can open it up and the data is already in there and whatever. And that's not how you would normally develop, but sometimes, you know, there's something where it's like, I can only reproduce this bug with this exact state and it's really hard to find. And, but here you go, like you open this up and it will cause that bug, that kind of thing, uh, which is super helpful. The other thing is most of these will have some kind of pairing remote sharing the workspace ability. So like if, if you're on a team in Gitpod, for instance, I can just send you my workspace and you can literally like open it up and edit it alongside me. And it's, the exact same workspace, which is really nice for when you want to pair on something or it's like, I've got some bug I can't figure out. Like, can you just hop in here for 30 seconds and just like, look at this and tell me what you think, which is really nice. Again, you can do that with screen sharing and stuff, but it's nice for the person to be able to like go through the files, to be able to see the logs coming through as they're going and changing terminals, doing whatever they need to do. I can totally see the advantage as a contractor where I am dealing with lots of different projects because sometimes you're signing agreements that, you know, I'm going to treat this with super privacy. I'm not going to let this code touch any other code, that kind of a thing. And sometimes I know of people where they will have a laptop dedicated to a particular customer or client of theirs. And so like this would solve that problem, right? I can have a completely isolated environment for dealing with this customer's project and completely isolated environment for this other customer's project. And that would really help me there. That's attractive. I, I can see that. That's currently not the situation I'm in. And I usually go the, the longer term I'm working at a company on a product or like my own projects. So it's not necessarily attractive to me for that reason. So I, I do want to come back to this idea of what this actually feels like you know, I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm hearing you. It's like, okay, I can see some of the collaborative elements. That's, that's super helpful. I can totally see like the consultant point of view there too. But then I'm also thinking about like, just what does this practically look like? If I'm doing Elixir development, my development environment is remote and I want to run my Phoenix app. Like you're talking about like this Docker Compose thing for bringing up all the services, but I want to run a Phoenix app. And normally I'm just going to localhost and port 4,000 and I'm into my app. How do I actually connect to services, one or more services that I'm developing on actively? This is actually one of my favorite parts of this whole thing. 
So actually, let me just tell you how this works in, in Gitpod, because I think it does it the best. So when you spin up a workspace, much like VS Code does, it's going to automatically detect any time that you start running something on a port. And you can predefine what ports are going to be running and whether you want those to be publicly accessible, that is, accessible to someone who's not logged into Gitpod under your account or your team account, depending on how you have things set. So it'll detect, let's say, that you've got something that opens up a Phoenix app on port 4000. And what it'll do is it'll actually generate a unique URL based on, on your workspace for that port specifically. It'll SSL secure it. This all happens behind the scenes. Like you don't notice it, it takes zero time. And it can do that for as many ports as you need. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are some reserved ranges or something like that. But in general, we'll have ours set up so that uh, it spins up a Phoenix app. Maybe it spins up an API and let's say a data pipeline or something like that, like some kind of data ingress endpoint just for testing. And it would spin those up, let's say 4,000, 4,001, 4,002. The workspace is going to give me this URL SSL secured for each of those if, if I want it to. If let's say I want to make it public so that I can hit it with Postman or I've used it for like demos and meetings and things like that. And it's just going to route it there automatically. So that's a really nice feature. You can preview it either in your editor or just in your browser. Like it's, it just works like anything else. And I actually find it gives a, a lot better of a, a dev experience because you're getting the real thing. Like this is not local host where you, you know, you run into exceptions where it's like, oh yeah, on localhost you can use WebRTC with no SSL. But when you do that in production, you're going to get some different behavior because all of a sudden you're dealing with like different things, which is something I used to run into. I used to work on some, some video chat stuff. And the team would always run into this issue where, you know, they're doing something on localhost and then it just doesn't work the same way in production because Chrome treats it totally differently or, or whatever. So it's really nice to get it that way. There's also certain things that like you have to turn on flags in your browser to do certain things on localhost or to do things without SSL even on localhost. And that can be super annoying. In general, I, I really like that feature. I can open up whatever ports I want to. Are they able to be secured behind a VPN kind of thing? Like the, the app that I'm actively developing on, I don't want to be publicly accessible. Like that is blocked away by default, I assume, right? Yeah. So by default, everything is private. So if you went to that URL, it would just basically 404 it just would tell you there's nothing there or it just wouldn't resolve at all and the other the other thing that a lot of these will work with and i think the thing is some people are probably listening to this thinking like oh there's this like weird workspace thing that's like like what is that you can literally think of it as whatever the image is let's say ubuntu like it's it's an ubuntu vps or like a, it's just a server it acts exactly the same way there is no you have all the privileges there is no like real restriction that I've ever run across that I couldn't do in localhost. So it, it works really well that way. And then it makes that private by default. And you can either you can have in your configuration file to automatically make it public if you want to. You can have it ask you every time, like have a little pop-up that says, you know, I've detected this port. Do you want to make it public or do you want to just view it privately? So where are those dialogues happening? Are they like in VS Code popping up with a notification? Yeah, this would be in VS Code. So like the uh, the version of VS Code that Gitpod uses is the open source version of that, which is actually really close to parity with everything. You know, you'd have pretty much everything you'd expect. If you want actual VS Code, you just run it locally on your desktop. And when you spin up a workspace, there's a button that says open this 
in VS Code, like on my desktop, and then it's the exact same thing. So in that case, you would get the normal version. But yeah, you you would see it under the ports connection, and uh, there's just a button there, like make public, make private. Uh, it's just a little lock. It's it's a really simple concept, and it works really well. In practicality, I've used this for, I mean, everyday testing. You know, I'm I'm looking at my UI in my browser which is really nice with Elixir because of the auto hot reload stuff. Like I don't have to add in anything to Phoenix to have it hot reload that. But I've used it for client meetings. I've used it for demos. I've used it uh, just with the team, like showing something off or, or testing something out. One of the other things that you can do with this is you can actually coordinate workspaces together. So let's say generally I'll just run Docker and Docker. Like I'll just, I'll open that workspace up. It'll spin up Docker Compose and start doing whatever it needs to with the ecosystem. But I could also have it coordinate with something like TailScale and wire together a bunch of workspaces all at once that are running in different regions separately. So for Elixir developers, if you want to run a cluster of Elixir apps, like an OTP cluster, that can be pretty hard to test out in localhost in any real way. But with this, it's like, you spin up five workspaces together, have them all, you know, mesh together in a, in a, like a local network, a private network over something like TailScale or, or whatever you'd like. And you can have that actually run a cluster properly. It's running in three different global regions or, or whatever. That's a big point right there. I know that's, yeah, l- debugging some distributed bug like that. Uh, on local hosts is impossible. <laughs> and so what I've had to do is usually like go jump on a staging server and hopefully it can replicate the bug there, but that's usually difficult too. And God forbid that you jump on the production server and try to debug there. But yeah, I don't know why you guys are talking about like, well, I just work on prod. Why do you need another <laughs> development? That is your remote yeah. development environment. That's prod. <laughs> I really, I really like the demo aspect of what you're talking about. Like that, that's really cool. When I was in college, I worked at a dev place that had like a rack in the office that we would all develop on. And that's how we demoed. And it was awesome. And people would jump onto each other's environments. And we all just kind of like shared slash home slash Cade was where my code lived. And, and like, you know, there were pros and cons to it, but demoing was a huge was a huge benefit when we would go out to clients and stuff. We would we would always have something in our development space working that we could show to them, you know, and it was real and on the internet and accessible and they could browse to it too. And I think that's really cool. One thing that I keep wondering about though is how you manage secrets like this. Because usually that's just like, I don't know, something you hush-hush transfer across Slack when somebody onboards and, and they put it in their .end file or whatever. Like, what, what does that look like in this situation? Copy and paste out of a Word document. <laughs> Microsoft Word. So, I mean, I, th- I think that this is kind of like the bane of a lot of companies' existences. At Quantified Citizen, w- we have a lot of regulations to follow. We're doing a lot of healthcare-related things and, and all of the regulations that come with that. I mean, most of these services will have something built in to manage this and it's basically like they'll encrypt it if you're doing that i would really only recommend having like dev level credentials for things it's like okay this is my sandbox key for whatever it doesn't actually do anything um there's no risk that way it doesn't have access to actual like customer data like patient data or anything like that yeah yeah and and i mean the reason for that is is basically 
at some point you need that key back in your workspace. And so it has to, it has to be decrypted at some point to use it. If you want to do things that way, that's the easiest way out of the box. It works really well. It's literally just like go here, just like in GitHub. When you enter a, like an environment variable for GitHub actions or something like that, it works very similarly to that. But you could also use something like, you know, HashiCorp Vault or, or whichever, if you want to run a server like that, just to grab credentials from at runtime. That's probably what I would recommend for anyone who needs to use like credentials that could be dangerous to have anywhere but on your production box. Most of the time, I think that's actually not the case though. Like most of the time, your dev credentials are are different and far less dangerous than your production credentials would be. Like, you know, you are using sandbox API keys and things. So it's not really a, a concern. But yeah, that's what I would do is I would I would just hook up to uh, some kind of remote server that does that. And that's probably what you'd be doing on localhost anyways, if you're you need that level of security, like you're probably not storing your environment variable or like your secrets and things for the company on your local computer. Like it's, they probably wouldn't let you. They're less secret secrets. Exactly. Yeah. So that's, that's the way I would do it. For the most part, we just have things like in the Gitpod environment variable setup that they have. You can set it up by project by each user can have their own as well. So like I have some that will do things like you know, URLs to download dot files and things that I like to have, that kind of stuff. But uh, generally, we can just we can just use those because it's safe credentials in, in the sense that if they were ever leaked, we would just change them and someone would get to mess around with the sandbox on, you know, whatever service for an hour or something. I work at fly.io. And one of the things that we deal with a lot is people coming to deploy their apps. That makes sense. People come to deploy their apps. <laughs> you know, people are always at different levels of technical comfort, I guess, or I, I don't know, you'd call them how advanced they are, but like some people are, you know, they're front end devs, right? I want to do JavaScript. I don't even, you know, I want to do back end as a service. I don't even want to have to think about how to design a database, right? They want to focus on the front end. There are people who don't know anything about Docker or Docker files. With Phoenix, with Chris McCord and his help, we created a, when it goes to deploy, it'll actually generate a Docker file for you that works for the default Phoenix app. But it's a place where you can customize from. But when you talk about this, getting these environments set up, I think it requires a great deal more skill, I think is the word I'm looking for. Just that I know I need to know about Docker. I need to know about Docker Compose. I need to have multiple systems designed like I, I in my compose file maybe i have my a pg database running in there and it's attached through my docker compose through the a, a network and i need to now understand docker networking it's a, a higher bar for people to be able to get started with this it, it, does that sound true and like if that's the case you know how do people get started with this i think that it's not necessarily true I think it could be. It depends on your project. Some people jump right away to some pretty high complexity with the way that they orchestrate their their apps. But in general, most of the time you can you can do this with without something like Docker Compose so that you're not combining all of these things. And if you are, maybe it's a good idea to make that its own repo. Like that you have a repo that just runs Docker Compose to run this ecosystem as a whole, but everything else has its own repo and when you're working on that you're working with that single docker image there is no docker compose it's just that image 
I also think that it's maybe a, a bit of a trick thinking that a basic Docker file, like let's say something that can run Phoenix, like generally that's, it's about 20 lines. And I think thinking that that's going to be more complicated to learn than necessarily having everyone set this up locally, because they're going to have to do basically all of the commands in that anyways, except locally. And everybody's going to do it a little different. Everybody's going to make a different mistake probably along the way. And they're going to have a different version that they're starting from for their OS or whatever. So I think that um, one of the best things to keep in mind with this is that like you want to do this as building blocks, basically. So even if you have an ecosystem of 10 apps and they all need to be Docker composed together and do all that stuff, have each app have its own repo, have it have its own Docker file that is simple, that can be run on its own. And if it needs the ecosystem to work with it, bring that ecosystem up by running Docker compose commands after the fact. And usually that's just like run a script that's five lines long and runs like Docker compose up, Docker compose build, whatever it needs to do and have that be its own repo and and sort things out that way. That's that's my opinion on it. That's actually how we do it is we have a separate repo. It makes it really easy so that when I'm working on one app and it does need the ecosystem, I can just open up a workspace. It spins everything up. I can have it optionally spin up the rest of the ecosystem, but everything about this workspace is dedicated to that app, not the whole ecosystem. I don't need to think about what's going on in the other ones unless it's something specific I'm working on with that. I can still dip in there and look at the files because you know, we're, we're still pulling in the files of the other projects if we want to, so it's nice and easy that way. I think that's the sweet spot right there. Like, I, I'm still not convinced of doing remote development on some other machine because like there's some of the arguments about like well where what what if it's compromised or i leave my laptop somewhere like if it, on the security perspectives like the same thing can happen on a remote you know uh, a container it's just that it's not my responsibility now to think about where that laptop is now i'm deferring that responsibility to some other usually paid service and to think that security breaches don't happen on other services you know is is naive <laughs> But the sweet spot, I think, is committing your infrastructure as code. And today, that's very easily done with containers and, and Docker files and Docker Compose. And a lot of these tools are also open source. And so I, I don't have to depend on like one company, Gitpod, I have nothing against them, or Fly for that matter, right? I don't have to depend on one company for my development story entirely, right? I can I can use those services to do a service. And in Fly's case, it'd be deploy and Git pods might be to develop, you know, all these, all these other things. In CI, it's to go run tests. But locally, I can use those Docker files to spin up that app. And that app, and that could look in a lot of different ways. That could be the one application I'm concerned about in the moment, which is a great place for new developers at a company to start. They just need to be, you know, on this one app. Maybe six months later, they, did, they, they encounter a problem that in, involves collaboration with another app so they can then, you know, dive a little bit deeper into that Docker Compose, do those kinds of things if they want to, if they need to. Like that, and that's good. I I I'm I am down with that, but it's it's because it's still my environment. <laughs> well, I, I got one thing I want to add to this Docker Compose thing, because as Carter was describing this, it's like, okay, so I've done that situation where we had I was at a company with Cade and we had a very complex system that had a lot of moving parts and services. So I created a Docker Compose that would bring up 
our Postgres database, our MySQL database, a legacy Mongo database, and multiple services. And then the complexity was that when we wanted to work on, you know, actively develop on service X, I had to not have that come up in the compose file. And then so I could interactively develop with that locally. And then it would still have to be able to plug into all the other ones that are running through the compose. So I'm wondering if that problem could also be solved. I I wouldn't have that extra complexity of like, oh, well, don't run this in the compose because I have to uh, work on it locally outside of Docker. Well, about containers, though, uh, where I was going with that was remote development, but not in a, on a remote machine. It's remote development inside of your Docker container that you've spun up. Those are that's all that was always so hard for me to set up. Well, VS Code's got yeah, I, I get it. Like, and maybe the story's gotten better. Uh, VS Code's <laughs> got that built in now, and uh, we got a link to like a NeoVim plugin that can do similar things, even parsing the same like JSON files that that VS Code would do for you. When I first did that, it was a little bit tedious. But yeah, Carter is is that is that a good way to go? Yeah, we actually have people who don't really use the remote development too much, mainly because they're they're working on like mobile apps and that's a whole different thing when you need to have like hardware specific things, you need to be able to connect to your phone over USB and test things out. But because we've we've containerized everything, we've encapsulated it, because we're working with it so ephemerally everywhere else, it has to it basically it either is going to work every time for everyone or it's never going to work for anyone. So you you keep it in a good state. Which seems like it would be a lot of work, but honestly, it's like maybe once every few months someone does something and it's like, okay, who broke the thing? But it's a five-minute fix. But yeah, that, that's a great way to do it. Like these days, especially, you can basically run your own sort of local version of this. You just don't necessarily have as many of the niceties, the conveniences. You know, it's harder to share your workspace with someone else, that kind of thing. It's harder to demo it. Maybe you got to run NGROC or something like that. But you're still getting a lot of the value out of it. And it's just a really nice way to work. And, and it means that you can work in a much cleaner, coordinated fashion with the team. But also, even as a, as a solo developer, like I, I work on, on Approximated.app on my own. It's an Elixir, Elixir project. It's just my own project. I still use this because it's just so nice to be able to, for instance say, you know what, I kind of want to work on this crazy feature, or I want to try like totally ripping out the database and some other like OS dependency level stuff and just try something totally weird and new. And I'll just create a branch, spin up a workspace and do that and know that I'm not, there's nothing I have to revert. There's nothing I have to reconfigure or figure out later to go back if I decide, oh, you know what, this isn't the way. It's just, I can just burn it. And sometimes I'll do that five times in an hour. You know, it's like, okay, I want to try this out. Ah, oh, this isn't working. All right, just burn the workspace, start a new one. Ten seconds later, I'm I'm up and ready to go again, which is really nice. And I know I'm one of the the few developers still doing this, but I I work on a desktop. I just always have. I like it. I like building them. Whatever. I also have a laptop. So if I have to go anywhere, it's nice to be able to just switch machines. And like, there's absolutely no work. There's not. I don't even have to sync files. I you know. I do need an internet connection, but I honestly can't remember the last time I worked. I did dev work without an internet connection. And if I absolutely had to, I'd do local, like you're saying. Like, I'd just bring it down, so. That's funny, though, because, like, you know, when I go on vacation or something, it's like, I, the assumption is I'm going to have internet. And because I'm going to still do any kind of project work, even if it's not, like, full-time work. But, yeah, like, uh, I'm not going to travel somewhere a lot most of the time if there isn't. <laughs> it's, uh, I mean... 
it's sort of just ubiquitous at this point. And it, there are lots of people out in the world who don't necessarily have that being the case. I still think it's it's nice if you have internet connection at least half the time and the rest of the time you can you can still work locally. There's no reason you can't. It's not a hard switch. The argument of not having internet connection is pretty weak when it comes to like saying don't do, you know, remote development. No, you're going to have internet. That's fine. You you'll be okay and for those like 10 minutes you can go for a walk, <laughs> get some ice cream. I mean the other, the other thing is I think a lot of people bring up is performance, which I, I don't really understand anymore because I think people are thinking of this like when they used to, you know, like team ux into something in university back in the day or whatever. Uh, I think it's also people might be imagining VNC style, total desktop mirroring. Like, so I'm sure a lot of our listeners are like too young to even know about that kind of stuff. <laughs> Citrix, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But like that, like where you move your mouse and you like watch it trail along behind you. But <laughs> well, no, no, that was a feature. You t- you'd have that, you had to check that box <laughs> on Windows to have the trail. <laughs> so I think some people are imagining that, right? And that's not applicable anymore. No, it's, I mean, in fact, it's a pretty simple problem to solve. I mean, aside from, you know, like things like Fly, where you can spin up a workspace or an instance like super close to someone. So the latency is going to be too small for a human being to notice. But even aside from that, most of the time, like what it's doing is it's going to be working with the file locally and then diffing the changes up when you save it or whatever, you know, like it's not, it's not like every keystroke is going up to the server and has to come back down or or whatever, you know, even the terminals are, are becoming so optimized for that, that like, it feels local. Quick shout out to Mosh, by the way, instead of SSH. Mosh will uh, help with those uh, weird connection issues that make it feel bad. Mosh kind of smooths over that to make it not so bad, especially good for like iPad um, development. Wow, I've got to try that out. I do have a question, and I'm curious about your thoughts on this. I am always thinking about and concerned about those coming new to Elixir in our community. And I'm concerned that if we say, this is the right way to do it, you know, I, I've known too many people who come in and they say, I want to learn the right way, right from the beginning. It's like, well, okay, that's harder. <laughs> you know, like just even saying that you're going to be using ASDF to manage your versions. It's like, well, I just want to start playing with Elixir, right? It's like, just get Elixir installed, right? Some way, somehow get started. So I'm just concerned about the barrier that this might put in people's minds about what does it take to get started? Uh, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I disagree, basically. Um, <laughs> the barrier to get started could feel like it's higher. I, I, I'll admit that. Like having to, having to figure out, oh, how does Docker work? Because I was, I was against Docker for so long. It just seemed like so complicated and like, why do I need this? But at the end of the day, it's one of the ways that we can actually have people in the community create things that new members, new developers can actually lean on. So someone could create like, here's a really good starter image for a development workspace in a Phoenix app, let's say. You know, basically what Phoenix does now with their mix command for for creating a, an image. But if somebody said, you know, okay, here's here's generally what people are using. This is the 80% use case. This is a really great starting spot. You don't have to figure out how to... I mean, when I came to Elixir, I was not a, a new developer. I was coming from other languages and however many years of experience. And it still really frustrated me trying to figure out how to set up... Like, I was like, what do you mean I have to compile Erlang? Like, what is Erlang? Why Why am I doing this? All these things. And Erlang is not an easy compiler. That's a, 
that's a heavy duty compile. And and these days you just download, you know, something that's pre-compiled and whatever. But in general, I think the obstacles for a new developer to do that without some kind of containerization is actually higher than with, where we could have somebody say, oh, you know, this is the recommended dev environment image. You don't have to do it remotely, but just use this locally on your computer. You spin it up, you connect. I bet you the instructions for that, like if you had docs for that, they would be a lot shorter than doing it from scratch. That's sort of how I feel about that. I want to point out a project. It's not part of Rails, but it's it's just another script that can be used to set up a Rails project for probably new developers. It's rails.new. Like that's a web address for rails.new. It's a Ruby script. But like, I'm gonna, here, I'm going to read the things it installs, right? Homebrew, Xcode, command line tools. This is Mac only, by the way. Git, RBENV, NVM, Node.js, Yarn, Redis, Postgres, Ruby, and then it does the gem install Ruby on Rails things too. Like that's a it's a long list. And if you're a brand new developer, I, I don't I don't want to know what all that. I mean, I appreciate the script to make it like a one shot thing, right? Copy and paste this into your terminal, and then you're you're basically done. So that's good. But the fact that this tool is a little bit necessary seems like an issue. Maybe I think it's funny that the tagline says new Mac to Rails development in 11 minutes. Like I would expect, 11 seems a little high. Like if it's all doing everything for you, I'd expect it to say like one minute or something. It's like, you could be off the ground in 11 minutes. <laughs> it's, it's probably got to install something. Like if it's doing RBENV, then it's probably got to like go go fetch Ruby and so on. That can take a bit. I get it. And I'm sure if you did it manually, it would take like hours. But still, I just thought it was funny that that's like their tagline, 11 minutes. It's funny you'd mention like RBNV. Like that's what ASDF is a, a comparable fit for that. But it's one of those things where, you know, you ha- say you have a script to get you there and get that all set up. It's modifying your bash environment and your profile. And like, if you don't understand what's doing, you have to maintain that going forward. And that's just part of that whole maintenance of an environment hassle that I think is a challenge for people. But yeah. So my so my point isn't that we these tools are unnecessary, right? Yeah. Of course, of course they're they're necessary, and and the goal is to get a new developer up and running and and developing in the language. That's where we want them to be as soon as possible. Now, in in Elixir world, we've made a couple of moves to make that even better for for uh, new developers. We've got Livebook you know, dot app now. Livebook desktop, yep. Yeah, we've got Livebook <laughs> desktop now. Like that gets you an Elixir super quick. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff. You you are done. And the fact that Elixir and Erlang has ETS in there kind of kind of takes care of the issue of, of Redis and the and the desktop portion of Livebook, you know, takes care of like you, you skip over ASDF. Git is not a thing you have to worry about yet until you're ready to start like learning that concept. There's things there. Okay, so so... Docker, though, Docker is just another one of those things that, you know, would have to be introduced to the new developer in order to to get started. Even if they don't understand all of it, just being exposed to it. It's tool fatigue is a real thing. And, you know, inundating new developers with 10, 20 tools here just to get started seems to be a bit high. I have to add, you know, with Docker, I use Docker, right? I, I like Docker. It solves a lot of problems for me. But how many times has it happened? I don't even know where I'm like, man, I'm running out of disk space. And I realize <laughs> Docker has consumed all this, all this stuff is I have to go prune all of it. Got to go kill that QCAL2 file. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and like I'm not a, a, a someone who's new and does not understand what's going on, uh, what all these pieces are doing, unless we are also in these environments building the maintenance tools 
and say, oh, remember to do this uh, once a week or monthly or set up a cron job or, you know, it's like, oh, what's cron? You know, it's just, it's like, I think it's frightening. Just the the level, like uh, the, the tool fatigue, I think is a good uh, expression for it. So, so I, I'm, again, I, I am advocating for Docker because I think that fixes legit issues. I just don't think there are issues that new developers have to worry about until they encounter the issue of like, inconsistent environments or constantly having to spin up things for some reason or a team-based kind of... Or I want to deploy to production or something. <laughs> yeah, or deploy to production, which is, you know, I guess coming sooner rather than later. <laughs> <laughs> but um, So I, I agree. Yeah, Docker's a good thing. I, I just don't know where in the life cycle it should be for a new developer. And it's just new developer. Experienced developers, yes, that is the... you got to know Docker and containerization stuff. That is just... One of those things, you know, that you got, we got to earn our, earn our keep. <laughs> okay. So when, when I first came into this conversation, I was a little doubtful that like, yeah, that this is that I, that I could get anything out of this, but that's not true. I, Carter, you've helped, you've helped uh, convince me and, 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 you know, show me some valid points there. Docker is here to stay. Containerization is here to stay. You know, there is good value to like, you know, help our teammates get to the same points of development that that we are and, and the environments that we have. Can you help me recap like all the, the big points that we talked about? And then, you know, like what, what's your recommendation for developers? Like where do you see, you know, development in five to 10 years, right? Going back to that article that originally spawned all this is, you know, where, where do you see this going? Remote development environments basically give you a way to encapsulate, reproduce and share dev environments in a really easy way. That can be locally, it can be remote. The thing is, when you design it for remote, you're getting all the same benefits locally for the most part. And then you get the extra conveniences of whatever these you know, services, providers, uh, whatever you have set up can give you. As far as new developers and some of the difficulties, you know, the tool overload, that kind of thing, I think that it's worth considering, is it more difficult to get them onboarded with one tool that can set up all of their other tools for them versus having them have to learn every tool from the start right away. And everybody should learn all of their tools eventually. But if you're a brand new developer, is it easier to jump into an image that has everything set up in a recommended way first and then learn those tools as you go on versus not? For the future, I think that eventually we're going we're gonna to see more and more and more of this I think that a lot of the developer voices that we hear right now these days are very much, for one thing, a, a Western voice, people from Silicon Valley, San Francisco, West Coast, things like that. And we like the way that we've been doing things so that, you know, we're hesitant to change anything. We have expensive computers. We have access to all of this stuff. But there's a lot of the world that's coming online and new development communities where it is a huge benefit to be able to have a Chromebook and be able to do really sophisticated development. In some cases, I think that remote development over time is going to become this commoditized, cheap, easy thing to do. And it will make more and more sense the same way that most people aren't running their own Git servers anymore. They're using GitHub. So I, I think over time that that will go that way. I also think that some of the concerns about, you know, will I be able to have it my way? Am I going to be restricted in some way? I think those will get addressed. I think most of them have been addressed in some of the best services. But over time, like that, that's going to be more and more uh, freedom. And I think people will just slowly move over to that. But again, the thing is, this stuff can all coexist really well with localhost. You're not going to get edged out if you, if you only want to develop on localhost. 
you'll still get all the benefits. That's a good mentality to have because local hosts worked so well for so long. There's no reason to get rid of it. It's just, it's nice to have this new way of doing things as well. So I understand your concerns. For a long time, I had them. I didn't like any of this containerization stuff. I, <laughs> you know, I, I learned the hard way to do sysadmin and run a server and all of these things. But it's just, you know, it's the same thing that we did for production. I think we could do for development environments, make them a lot easier, a lot more reproducible. Yeah, just just like how deploying your PHP app and by WSF TPing up to your CGI bin <laughs> provided by your MindSpring ISP uh, <laughs> isn't uh, isn't really the way to do things anymore. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Points well received. Thank you so much, Carter, for going through that with us. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, Carter, if people want to follow you online or get in touch with you, maybe they have some questions like, well, how would you solve this? Or is there any way that they could reach out to you? And what's the best way? Uh, the best way is definitely on Twitter. My Twitter username is at Carter Bryden. It's just my name. So reach out to me on there. Uh, DM me. Might take me a second because of the, uh, if I don't know you already, it, it doesn't give me a notification, but definitely there. If anybody wants to see uh, some of the things that are are using this remote dev environment stuff, check out quantifiedcitizen.com, check out approximated.app. Those are both things that are built using this. And yeah, just feel free to reach out anytime. I'm a usually a friendly guy, except when someone disagrees with me on Twitter, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I also want to plug that you have a podcast of your own called Indie Elixir. It's like Indie and Elixir are sharing the E. So it's Indie Elixir. IndieLixer.com. We'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. And we'll have a link to all the ways you can get in touch with Carter in the show notes. So check that out. So thank you for coming on and talking with us. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been a blast. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.